We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. Quote just he's just so dumb sometimes. He keeps reiterating this this wish that Azima, his daughter, <laughs> if only she was a boy, then Okonkwo would just be happy. And in my notes I wrote down, like, have you not considered the possibility that part of the reason why you like her and her personality? Is the fact that she's a girl? Has that not occurred to you? No, of course not. Because being womanly is the worst thing you can be. He's just (laughs) couched himself in this own mythos of his own manliness that he just can't see how dumb he's acting and how that just ultimately hurts. There's this great moment where they're talking about this old couple who has suddenly passed away. And I'll just read it here. So it was always said that, forgive me for pronunciation, Nadulu, Nadulue, and Osoema Mena had one mind, said Obriarica. I made that a Spanish pronunciation. I don't know why. I remember when I was a young boy, there was a song about them. He could not do anything without telling her. I did not know that, said Okonko. I thought he was a strong man in his youth. He was indeed, said Ofoedu. Okonko shook his head doubtfully. And it's just this great moment where the concept of this couple, who apparently were just on the same wavelength, and basically, in a lot of ways, it sounds like, treated each other as equals within this relationship. And Okonko just can't even fathom that. And he certainly can't fathom how this guy could have been a great warrior if he was always, in his mind, kowtowing to his wife. But that's exactly what's wrong with Okonko. He's so stubborn that he can't see that maybe other people have better perspectives on this, or at least differing perspectives that are just as valuable and can contribute to the (laughs) ultimate well-being of the culture itself. It's funny because, like, I think you talk about how his second wife is the most important wife, but that's not, it really doesn't have anything to do with Okonkwo and his relationship with her. It's just that she gets the most space in this book And for good reason, because she's lived through a lot of hardship and it seems to have gained a lot of wisdom through the process of that. And man, it would have been great to have a moment in this book where Ekwefi and Okonkwo have a discussion about what's happening and what should be done. But of course, that never happens because Okonkwo is just too full of himself to even consider the possibility one of his wives might have a piece of advice that is worth listening to. And that's actually kind of like why I liked that scene, scene you were talking about that that's your favorite chapter, is that we see Equefi really acting on her own and showing a lot of initiative and showing a lot of courage. She's running around at night 
And when you're in a place that's full of lions and hyenas and all sorts of deadly creatures, running around at night is one of the most dangerous things you can do. So the fact that she's running after her own child in the darkness, it says a lot about her. Just everything about her is great. She's a wonderful character, and it's kind of a shame that she disappears in the latter half of this book. But there's a reason for that, because Okonkwo is just not going to even bother doing anything with her besides getting fed by her and, I guess, having sex with her. Yeah, like, I I really like that scene. Specifically, like, obviously, she gets a lot of screen time, but also... Like, Okonkwo talks a lot about, like, he he doesn't really know how to show affection or he thinks it's weak to show affection. And there's this really funny moment in that scene where, like, Aquafi's been, like, following, again, the oracle has Azima on her back and is carrying her around in the dark before she takes her to this, like, sacred cave area thing. And so she's just running around after her. Okonkwo lets her go, but his plan is to just go directly to the cave. <laughs> And like, wait, but he doesn't want to show up too early and look too worried. So he like waits a while. Then he goes to the cave and they're not there yet because they're walking around. So he's like, goes back. And he does this like four times <laughs> before he he shows up. And then him and uh, Equifi like end up sitting together and waiting for Azima. And it's this this one moment of real, like, solidarity you see between them and, like, mutual concern for their child and mutual love for their child. And it's one of the few moments of real vulnerability you see from Okonkwo. And I think having, like, a character like Okonkwo is hard because we're not going to like him. And you're not really supposed to like him. I think that if he was just this, like, asshole who, like, just beats his wife and children the whole time, we're not, like, really feeling the loss as much but like when you see these moments of him really caring but being too scared to show that he cares to be scared to be vulnerable it makes what has happened to him both within his own culture and then what happens at the end that much more tragic Mm. because you see that like there is within him this this real love that he has for azima and he is really worried about her but like he can't be there in any way other than, like, pretending to show up late to sit silently and wait for her. And I think that's just a, what I really enjoyed about that scene is it made his character, what happened to his character, more impactful for me in the other scenes. Because we got, I mean, it's like, it's the pet the dog moment, you know? <laughs> uh, if you haven't heard about this, like, storytelling term, if you want to show someone's reprehensible, you have them kick the dog. And if you want to show that this person has some goodness within them, you have them pet the dog. This moment is very much like a pet the dog moment. Dog, huh? I love dogs! I also wanted to, you mentioned this a long time ago. We've kind of moved past it, but it is a good quote. So I did kind of want to just put it on the pod. But you mentioned the the character who was kind of questioning. And that character is Oberika, who is essentially Okako's best friend. That's certainly the image we have of him. And he's the same one who was kind of speaking in praise, I believe, of the couple earlier that you mentioned. And so we're told, uh, Oberikan was a man who thought about things. When the will of the goddess had been done, he sat down his obi and mourned his friend's calamity. Why should a man suffer so grievously for an offense he had committed inadvertently? This is about Okonkwo accidentally murdering that dude. 
But although he thought for a long time, he found no answer. He was merely led to greater complexities. He remembered his wife's twin children, whom he had thrown away. What crime had they committed? The earth had decreed that they were an offense to the land and must be punished. And if the clan did not exact punishment for an offense against the great goddess, her wrath was loosed on all the land and not just on the offender. As the elders said, if one finger brought oil, it soiled the others. I do think that is such an interesting moment worth dwelling upon in terms of like the context of all we kind of previously said about community and society and being able to have, I think it is important to have that character who is questioning society, who doesn't, like Noaya does, go over to the Christians to find refuge. Like He's able to question and say he wonders about these things and he doesn't understand them, but he also has this idea that like, there are certain things that just must be done to maintain the society because otherwise it crumbles. That's certainly not like, you know, universally true. <laughs> Societies can change. You can't, you don't need to keep like throwing your twin children out into the wilderness <laughs> to like maintain society. But I think it is interesting within the the context of the book to to think about that perspective. And I think it's a perspective that a lot of people would say they have now that, like, you know, regardless of the right or wrong of something, like, there are certain things you just have to do to maintain society, which is, like I said, questionable. I don't know. I just, I wanted to read the quote since you mentioned it briefly, and it it does tie in very well with what we were talking about. I'm glad you brought it back up because I think something that's also important to note in this book is that it's not a monolithic culture. There are constant references to other tribes in the area. And mm-hmm. <laughs> it's also funny because most of the times when those other tribes get mentioned, it's just the characters <laughs> talking them for something they do slightly different. Yes. On the one hand, it's good to show that just like our own country, there, <laughs> there are divisions based on cultural values. But I also think it's good to show that how... These cultures are not static either. There is a possibility for change because clearly some kind of change must have happened between these different clans. There's a point there where you could argue that even if Christians were never in the equation of this book, that at some point these things would be challenged because some other tribe would come along and be like, we don't kill our twin babies come join us and you would get those those outcasts within the specific tribe of Okonkwo's tribe going out of the tribe because somebody else is offering a better life for them yeah so i think having that moment in here even though it is a small moment and it really in a lot of ways doesn't get brought up ever again but it's still so important to have it here just to say there is a possibility of change, and in some ways, change has to happen, otherwise our culture won't survive. And in fact, that is what happens. The culture doesn't survive because I'm hesitant to, to say it this way because it almost sounds like victim blaming. It's the Christian's fault that this culture is being subsumed. But if the culture had made some kind of allowances that would allow these outcasts a greater place or a way to get back into society or whatever the case might be, then the message from the Christians would have fallen flat and they wouldn't have had have gotten such a strong foothold 
into the culture that they were able to basically just wipe it out by degree. I think that it is hard, too, because there are always going to be outcasts from society. There will never be a perfect society in which everyone is included. So, like, I feel like the Christians would always have been able to get some kind of foothold. If this was just missionaries and the missionaries were not part of the larger British Empire, which, like, you have to remember, like, how political this was. This was not just bringing in a religion. This was the first step for colonization. Religion was a tool of the British Empire. It was the tool of all the European countries who came in. The missionaries came first and primed the people for then the government to come in. That's a crucial factor. Um, you know, we can't, we can't overlook. But like, I do want to say that the ending of the book is somewhat ambiguous in terms of like, obviously we know colonization happens, et cetera, et cetera. And like there was a lot of cultural damage done and there was a lot of a lot of people that were lost, a lot of ways of living that were lost, but some that like have survived to this day. There were people who managed to make it through that and hold on to their traditions and beliefs and obviously in an altered form today, but like the the book ends with the destruction certainly of Okonko's vision of what their society is. Mm-hmm. That dies with him, but that was shown to never be the real culture in the first place. And certainly their culture is under extreme attack. And we're seeing their ability to have the sort of self-governance that all people should be entitled to is being stripped away from them. But I do think there is some hope in that they have not as a society decided on war, which is smart because they would have absolutely gotten wiped out if they tried to do the war. The Europeans had had too much technology for that to have worked out well but like maybe i'm being too optimistic and saying that there's hope in seeing that there is a part of their society still united and working together certainly they're in for some very not good times (laughs) but that's it i i do like that the book didn't end with the entire like civilization entirely crumbling right we're left with something that is under siege, for sure. But you can see that there's still there is still a strength within them, even if it's not the strength Okonkwo wants them to have. I think I'm just trying to be optimistic. <laughs> I mean, I I don't know. I guess I I don't fault you for being optimistic, and I certainly don't think that this book is saying the Ebo culture is doomed because it's definitely not. I mean. Achebe wrote the book. He's coming from this culture. He knows this culture. So parts of it has, have survived this, this takeover and have managed to thrive despite the takeover. It's We do end the book with our main character committing suicide. So it's not exactly the most optimistic note <laughs> to leave on. Well, yeah, but he's... He's not meant to represent society, you know? Right. But that that's He's kind a, of an outcast in his own little way. Right. But I don't think the book is necessarily saying even at the end, his best friend is so sorrowful for what's happened and is yeah. so bitter against the Christians. And and he basically says, You did this to him. May, maybe we were never going to mourn. For this character, but we can at least understand why other people are mourning for him. Because as wrong-headed as he might be, 
in so many different ways. He is a prominent member of this community, and he, to some degrees, represents the community. Like, we have that scene at the, with the trial scene, specifically when there's these spirits, these elders dressed up as the spirits doing the trial, conducting the trial. We find out Okonkwo was one of the elders acting as a spirit. So he has some prominence in the community. Even if he's a bad representation of the community, he still is some kind of representation of the community. And with his death, a part of the culture also dies. Even if it wasn't Mm -hmm. a part to be respected, if it was a part that needed to undergo change, the fact is it wasn't allowed to kind of have its natural evolution where we could have seen Nwoye grow up and learn from his father's mistakes and not repeat the sins of the father. We could have seen perhaps Azima break through this guy's shell and offer him an alternative. The tragedy of the story is that we see moments where Okonkwo could be a better person, and sometimes it feels that he's just so close to getting there, but he he ultimately doesn't get the chance to do that because suddenly there's this threat against the community, and which is very natural, I think, for any culture when it's facing some kind of outside threat that the more extremist elements kind of take over and harden the shell to protect itself. That's the problem. So that's kind of where his best friend's questioning of the culture gets stifled out because they don't have time to debate the merits of is it okay to throw away our twin babies when you have these Christians coming in basically trying to assimilate the culture and then you hear news that some towns are being wiped out by these white people coming in. And it's like, Jesus Christ, that we need to rally the people here and try to stop these people before they destroy us. And so I think that's kind of what gives rise to Okonkwo's uh, turn at the end of the novel to really, I mean, he's always been a violent and warlike person, but he really just whole hog embraces that side of himself by the end to the point that he doesn't even see the tragedy of his own son leaving the community. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm i definitely not saying his death isn't a tragedy, because it absolutely is. Mm-hmm. I feel like the tragedy of him in general is just that, like, he seems to... He was kind of created, in some ways, by the worst elements of his culture. He's a result of, like, taking the worst lessons he could possibly have taken from <laughs> his culture. Yeah. And then, when that same culture is under... Tech, yeah, like you you explained really beautifully the ways in which that results in his death. And so like there's a tragedy on multiple levels happening with him. I just meant to say that, you know, there are certain books in which I would say, yes, the suicide of the main character stands in with the death of the culture as a whole. And I'm saying I don't I don't think Okonko stands for right. this culture. I don't think we're meant to understand him as standing for this culture. I do think I agree with you. He stands for a part of the culture dying. And I'm not even saying like, ah, yes, the worst part of the culture is dying. And therefore, no, I don't think that's what's <laughs> happening here. Yeah. <laughs> Just to be clear. But like you said, certainly, I think 
the potential for evolution is what's dying. And the, instead, this culture is, like you said, under threat. And it's hard for any culture under threat to really positively grow and change. And yeah, the tragedy of, of all these characters who might have had the potential to create different stories if only these people hadn't come in and decided to colonize them. Yeah. <laughs> the irony, I guess, of the title, with things fall apart, it suggests that there's some events that brings about the end of society. But the thing about any society is that things are always falling apart. Every generation loves to say that their generation's got it best, and that's all the forthcoming generations just don't know how good it was. And you get plenty of, uh, I'm just going to call it boomer talk in this book, where the older generations keep ragging on the younger generations of like, oh, you don't understand what hard work means. Oh, you don't know what the bonds of family, how important they are. Back in my day, we were friends with all the tribes, and now you play your video games, blah, blah, blah. And it's funny because we're highlighting the introduction of the Christians into this culture as a real catalyst of its demise. But the thing is, the Christians don't show up until well into the second part of the book. And before that, we already have people saying, like, the culture is changing. The kids aren't as cool as we are. And that's just kind of always true what's different is that in ideal circumstances those communities can go through those changes it's when you have this this invader coming along that stops the growth in this book and that even then even with the the christians coming along we have i think the first missionary his name is mr brown and I'm not saying that he's necessarily a good guy. I think the text gives us some clues about how he he is an agent of the British Empire. And yep. regardless of if he if he thinks that he's acting in the best interests of the Igbo culture and trying to spread the word of Jesus, he is nonetheless priming them for the takeover. There's a one part of the book that's talking about all the schools and that he's opened and how he's inviting kids from the community to learn English. And it ends up like kids come, but also some adults come. And the way he encourages the community to come along, it's like, hey, you see these people from other tribes that you don't know who are coming in and working with the white people that are here? Well, the reason they are is because they know English. So if you don't want to be left out and taken over by these other tribes, you better learn English yourself. The tactics are to assimilate this culture. And that sucks. But uh, I kind of got away from my point. The point is that there was a possibility through Mr. Brown of you know, okay, yeah, the Christians are coming and they're kind of annoying and they are influencing the community in ways that are troubling, but there was at least a possibility that they could have 
tolerated each other. Mm. And maybe that's me being optimistic. <laughs> um, but it's just a confluence of different factors, both from the Ebo culture, British culture, and just circumstances of individuals. Just imagine that Okonkwo's dad was a bit less of a deadbeat. That would have changed the entire trajectory of the story. And in the same way, if Okonkwo wasn't as much of a bastard to his own son, would his son have left for the Christians? And that's just the tragedy of it all, is that even if you did the right thing, there's just no guarantee that things would have ended well in any case. And I think that's what you're talking about where where this book kind of recognizes that no matter what the Okonkwo and, and his clansmen do, nothing was going to change the fact that they were going to be colonized. That's depressing. <laughs> you, Queen Victoria. There's also this interesting thing at the end. Earlier in the book, we learn if you intentionally kill a fellow clansman, the punishment is lifelong exile. And at the end, when they're having the debate, should they go to war? The initial speaker brings up, if we fight the stranger, and he's referring to the Christians here, we shall hit our brothers and perhaps shed the blood of a clansman. But we must do it. Our fathers never dreamed of such a thing. They never killed their brothers. But a white man never came to them. So we must do what our fathers would never have done. To me, that's the moment where really things break. And that's, that's the sort of how the Christians are so effective of taking over culture. Because it's not just a mm -hmm. bunch of white people coming in and being like, this place is ours now. They convert members of the community having the community self-sabotage if they decide to go to war they're going to commit a sin for lack of a better term that will stain the community forever and that's why you have to really <laughs> be very considerate in how you approach this situation because it's extremely complicated and you don't just behead the messenger when he shows up. Anyway, I feel like I've been rambling for too long. I don't know. I don't... Being a missionary is political. I'm sorry. Even today, being a missionary is political. If you're going and being a missionary somewhere, they have always been a tool of empire and of politics. And like you said, it, it, they do a great, really great job of showing why in this book. Um, because they soften up the community. They convert people. They weaken the society so that they can't band together. And then it's super easy for the government to roll up. And I think that it is significant, and I want to bring it up, that the messenger who comes, and then Okonko quit, kills along with, uh, and the messenger is one of five, I believe. Yeah. Is specifically telling them they're not allowed to gather mm. and have this discussion. That's what's the hand is saying. You can't do, legally, you can't gather like this. Which, like, is, you know, just a further, you can see the rights that are already being stripped away. And that does make his, Okonkwo's reaction, they're trying to stop the community from being a community because they're trying to stop their gathering and their decision making and their government processes, essentially. Yeah. <laughs> Seeing as that's what this gathering is. It's the community deciding what they're, how they're going to handle the situation, what they're going to do. 
and there, there's a reason the right to assemble <laughs> yeah. is something that uh we are I don't want to say ancestors because I don't think I'm not sure they're either of our ancestors, but the uh, founding fathers of this country really fought for the right to assemble because one of the tools of empire is stopping people from being able to assemble and fight against them. Obviously, like this is what this is what people do. So absolutely, he's totally rash and he shouldn't have acted without making sure everyone else was with him. But I think that it's not just that he was like woo murder. It's like this was. We've seen them take liberties with the rights of the Igbo people, but this is like a very definitive mm-hmm. strike saying you you are no longer allowed to be this society that you are. I do I did want to just like call that out, sure, because it adds a further dimension to Okonkwo. Yeah, to be clear, the decision he makes might have ultimately been the right one. That's kind of where I. I was thrown off by the ending because I couldn't get a sense of was this the right thing to do? On the one hand, he did just behead a guy. That's pretty terrible. But his culture, his town, his his tribe is at stake. God, like what what happens well, to him and the leaders was humiliating. It's just like I don't know because I I do think there's a danger. Of coming in and saying that, like, violence is never the answer. And it's like, well, okay. Do you think the American Revolution would have happened without violence? Mm. Sometimes, unfortunately, violence is the answer. It's just the mistake here, like you said, is that he's acting individually and not as a community. Mm -hmm. But it's also like, if they aren't allowed to gather anymore, then how could they act as a community anyway? So... Right. I mean, there's this part where, like, when Okonkwo comes back, he's like, all right, time to get these people out of our village. And um, Obeyrika is like, it's too late. They've already basically wormed their way in too much. And I mean, I think that that is what the answer that's presented to us is that it's too late. That even if, you know, the like we're talking about Okonkwo acting on his own, that's a real problem in terms of that situation. But like, Say, in the larger scheme of things, even if the community had rallied behind him, it's too late. They wouldn't, they wouldn't have been able to drive the British off. There's just no way. The way the American Revolution was able to do it is, and a lot of other, uh, similar revolutions against empires or larger powers is unifying fairly quickly before too many of them can come in and unifying not just this one group of people, but like, so many of the Igbo people would have had to, like, come together and work together. And then, obviously, like, guerrilla tactics, which generally is what works best with uh, giant empires that are technologically superior. But it's it was, it's too late for them to do that. The British are too entrenched. And it's just, it's too late. And obviously, that's its own kind of tragedy, is they had no idea it was coming. And when And when the British came, they were like, this is stupid. You don't even know how to say our words correctly. Every time you're trying to say myself, you're saying my buttocks. Which was a whole little comic interlude. (laughs) But like, so they don't take it seriously. And then they get rooted in and they start doing their thing. And again, this is why the missionaries going first is such a political, political thing. Because they don't look threatening. They're just talking about God. But God is the scariest thing of all. (laughs) 
Never trust anyone who talks about God. Yeah, the moment somebody brings up God, I run away. They start preaching to you about lying Jesus. You go. <laughs> you get out of those children's books. You peace right out. Oh, God. Excuse me. Can I tell you about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? Let's get out of here. One thing I want to push back on is mm. this whole idea that the um, Ebo never stood a chance against the British. Yes, even though the British are more technologically advanced in terms of weaponry, we have many examples in history of a quote-unquote technologically inferior culture beating a supposedly superior culture. America is a good example of that. We were just a bunch of ragtag colonies who came together and f***ing beat the British Empire. Well, yeah, no, that's what I was saying, is that if they had a chance, they did in the beginning. The issue is they didn't realize what was going on. And by the time that we're looking at, there's just not, I'm not saying they couldn't have done anything because like, we don't know the, (laughs) I can't tell you off the top of my head, the numbers and everything. Right. But certainly like from the perspective of like what I've read about other revolutions and stuff, there's just sort of like a period at which it becomes significantly more difficult. And I mean, you see with uh, what happened how India won its independence, that you can once people are fully entrenched. There are things you can still do, but that was like a very different situation. Sure. And at this point, it seems like, you know, they, the community itself has been fractured. They've lost touch with other communities, so they can't band together with them. They could win some victories if they came about it the right way, right? But mm-hmm. like, it's just like the, the challenge level... <laughs> Uh, right. Getting the British out is so much higher at this point to the point where it would it would take a lot. I, impossible is maybe a strong word or that they never stood chance. But certainly like the odds are so significantly against them. It feels impossible. Yes. I don't think clearly Okonkwo has not grasped, grasped the sheer numbers at stake here because they're it's mentioned very, very briefly how there were previous wars between the tribes and Okonkwo's bragging about, or internally bragging about one victory his tribe had against another where they killed like 12 of their people and only two of our own died. And in terms of the British Empire, those numbers are like the number of people they kill for breakfast, you know? And like we've mentioned multiple times, there's that other tribe that we know has been wiped out completely. It's gone. The British did that. There's no getting around that fact. They're at a severe, severe disadvantage. It wasn't necessarily inevitable. But yes, the odds were stacked up against them. And it is the the irony that it was the tribe's own actions or inaction really against the christians that basically allowed it to happen but how would they have known any better literally the christians came in and were ridiculous to them they were saying ridiculous things they were just the laughing stock of the town no it's like how could they have known that's part of why i said they they didn't stand they had no conception like it's just not even on their radar and why would it be 
They thought white people were just myths. <laughs> yeah. And that's why you always turn away the men of God. They're just that <laughs> they always presage doom. <laughs> God, we're so anti-religion on this podcast. <laughs> I want to say I'm not like anti-religion. I'm just anti like anyone who's trying to convert anyone. Because I like I said, it's always inherently political. Always. There yeah. I continue to be shaky on whether the Peace Corps is even a good thing. Oh, the Peace Corps is not a good thing. I'm the very specific oh, yes. reason it was created in the sixties was to spread the good old message that America was the best. And to yes. like try to spread No, I read an entire capitalism. like history of the Peace Corps. <laughs> so like I say I continue to be shaking on it because, like, it was created absolutely for the wrong reasons, 100%. Right. The people that were actually trying to do it, though, obviously came in with the best intentions, but maybe don't go into foreign places and try and impose anything on them. Just a thought. A message for you and me, Morgan, and our listeners who are white, as white readers, because mm. we can look at something like this and be like, I'm not in charge of the government. I can't control any of this. I don't have a say in any of this. And to some degree, that's true. We're not making those high-level government decisions that America is going to these countries and just doing bad shit. But if we're considering doing things like the Peace Corps, to be mindful of that history of what it means to go into a different country... Mm -hmm. Basically preaching our values. God really doesn't have anything to do with it. It's just preaching our own culture onto another culture and saying, you should be more like us. They, the, the Christians are just a vessel for that. But it's really just any culture doing that. Right. And what was once missionaries coming in, although missionaries are still a thing and still don't be a missionary. Yeah. But like what that looks like today, a lot of times is people going in and teaching English. That is the new missionary, essentially. Yeah, and I think that, uh, too, I mean, like, not something this book shows us so much as, like, just another thing that certainly, like, I don't know, I, I read this really, um, well, heartbreaking, honestly, uh, historical uh, nonfiction book about the Congo and the Dutch in the Congo, which is a whole, it's all own thing. But, like, Certainly part of what, what got Empire out of there was, like, people realizing what was going on back home and fighting against it. And certainly, anytime you can protest the things your government is doing, please protest the things your government is doing. But yes, on a base level, not. Yeah, it can be considerate of what you're doing when you're going other places, speaking to people from other cultures, being mindful of what you're spreading. And, I mean, we we haven't talked about this since the beginning, but I want to bring it back and kind of close out thinking about teaching this book in schools and stuff. And I think mm. this is a good way to transition into it. But like we talked about, you know, this not being our culture and that certain things, because our culture is different, certain things look bad or wrong to us that aren't actually inherently bad or wrong. Unlike the things that I think we all agree are inherently bad and wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, not we all agree, but <laughs> beating people, let's not, right. shall we? But like, you know, like the polygamy, checking that part in your brain that's like, okay, I'm coming into this other culture. I can't impose the morals of my culture onto that. And I have to try and learn about this other culture on its own terms and not like bring as little as I can of my luggage onto that culture. Like it's inevitable we're all going to bring our own cultural baggage, right? But 
trying not to impose that onto something else, I think is, is really important. And, you know, if you're teaching this book, I think prefacing this book by saying, like, we are reading, going to be reading about this other culture. You are going to see things that are not like our culture. And you mm. need to try and accept that on its own terms and take the good and bad of this culture without trying as hard as you can not to look at it through our American lens if you're reading it in the States. That's something that's really crucial for teaching this book because, like I said, I think that high schoolers can really miss a lot in this book and really not read it respectfully with, obviously, no teacher can stop a teenager from being an asshole if the teacher, <laughs> or if the teenager really wants to be an asshole. Like, can't. But you can certainly try and work against it as much as you can and try and set this book up for success when giving it to students. Because I think if you don't set it up for success and you have a very, uh, a audience that doesn't know a lot about this period of history, doesn't know about this culture, doesn't have that understanding, I think you're just, yeah, setting it up for kids to be like, God, that was really weird. That was a bummer. And I didn't like it. That main character was an asshole. Like, I think you need to, like, help them find the nuance and find that understanding as much as you can. I'm almost inclined to say that this should just this should be taught in history classes versus mm. English classes. Like obviously there's literary value here, but honestly as a ninth grader, <laughs> I did not have that literary know-how to really get the full value of that out of this book. Like, and even now reading this book, it's almost more interesting reading it as a, as not just historical, but a, as a political document of just mm. talking about how a culture can fall apart, the, the factors that contribute to that. Cause I, I just think when you teach this in an English class, you're going to be disadvantaged because you're going to be teaching it from a literary perspective. And I just don't know if this is not lampooning teachers at all but like teachers have so much on their plates already so if you ask an english teacher to like get really involved in the history of something that's asking so much of them uh. and, all right well i can he I hear already that you disagree but that's a concern i would have i guess it might be better served having a history teacher work with this in some, you know, especially talking about colonialism, because I think this really <laughs> illustrates how colonialism works and gives life to that, because I think there is a danger in history when you're learning about it. You're just sort of learning the very basic generic facts of something happened. But this gives a more human side of history. Anyway. Yeah, we're getting really close to my uh, giant rant about how essentially English and history should always be taught in fandom, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> which I will give the mini version of, which is that I find uh, if anyone is also a English major nerd, I generally write from the new historicist perspective, and I generally believe most uh, texts should be considered, especially within the context of their their history, their time and place, and Therefore, that we learn about history through literature, and we can learn about literature through history. Um, so, like, I very much agree that 
I think this would be really useful taught alongside history, like you said, to give history that added perspective. Like, obviously, this is different because this is written in, you know, the 1950s, looking back at, I believe, like the 1850s-ish. Mm-hmm. So it's not like coming from specifically that time period, but it still can function to talk about that time period and does give you a greater sense of understanding of it. But like, I just firmly believe there were so many books I read in high school, English class that were like, I mean, we read Night and we read Hiroshima. Mm. And I'm sorry, that should be, both of those should be absolutely taught within historical perspectives. There's like just no way not to. And the best English teachers I did have set up that historical context for us. Um, And I believe that's the duty of every English teacher if you're teaching you know, something that's not from our current day is to say, all right, here's the historical context. But I also believe that it's a history teacher's job to give documents from the time period or mm. documents that talk about the time period to give you that added perspective as well. So if I were to revamp the American school system, <laughs> I would make it so that English and history are always taught in sync. And so that what you're reading in your English class corresponds with what you're being taught in your history class. Uh. And that's my rant. <laughs> There's the utopian vision for the future. Let, you know, Morgan for president. That's what I say. I don't want to be president. I just want to reform the education system. All right. Well, Morgan for secretary of education. Yeah. Yeah. Although I don't really know if you'll have much opportunity to. I don't really know how powerful that position. Okay. I have no idea how powerful that position is either. (laughs) We're getting lost in tangents. So. Let's just wrap this up, I guess, with some final thoughts, if there are any. My final thought is that this book, it's just clearly so incredibly important, at least for us Americans, offering a different perspective of our own empire. This book really shows just how tragic colonialism is to everyone. Not not just the the Ebo culture depicted here, but people died for this bull. Yeah, that in and in and of itself should be tragic enough that everything else is is just moot. But obviously, that's the world's not an ideal place, so it takes more. And I think this book is really good at showing that. Did you have a final thought, Morgan? Yeah, I'll say um. I feel like I've been generally pretty positive throughout this podcast, so I would like to have a moment of slight negative <laughs> negativity where I say, I really uh, wish that we had gotten more plot arcs slash resolution for characters like Azima. Mm. There were some of the like background, well, not even background, I would say secondary characters that I really came to know and like, and I wish I had gotten more completion of their stories. And maybe, I believe this is part of a trilogy, so maybe their stories are completed in other books? I don't know. But I I hope so, because Azima deserves to have her story told. And I also want to end with this line that I just was really struck by. It is a line that Ekwefi says, um, and it's about after Okonko nearly kills her with the gun, and she's talking with one of her female friends about it. But I, this line just struck me as so much larger than that. But someone asks her if it's true, and she says it's true. And then she says, I cannot yet find a mouth with which to tell the story. Hmm. I just, like, couldn't help thinking about that. Like, I cannot yet find a mouth with which to tell the story. 
and how this this story is in some ways this person finally finding the mouth with which to tell this tale, finally having the space with which to tell it. And uh, I just thought that was really powerful. That, that was a really good compliment sandwich. You know, the, the you have one giant piece of bread <laughs> with all of our positivity on one side, a, the tiny sliver of, in, of uh, criticism, and then a very nice piece of bread on the other side. So this is the most lopsided compliment sandwich, but it's a <laughs> good one. To be fair, we did do some initial <laughs> criticism of feeling like we weren't able to connect with it as much as we wanted to, which I don't think we just really got into because I think that there were just more interesting things to talk about than to say yeah. that we felt kind of remote from some of the characters, which just like we felt remote from some of the characters. Yeah, honestly, who gives a f if a couple of white people don't connect with this book? <laughs> like, f us. This book is far more interesting than our own thoughts. So give it a read. And also like and subscribe and all that jazz. <laughs> <laughs> Continue to listen to white people talk about things. <laughs> uh, yeah, I really... Yeah, you uh, kind of like undercut us right there. <laughs> like, what does it matter what we think? <laughs> but listen to our podcast. <laughs> I mean, it doesn't matter what we think, but we would appreciate if you listen to the podcast. If only because uh, it's nice to have a space for these discussions and to be able to talk about books with people. And the more people we talk about the books with, the happier we are. Books are good. The end. So we'll see you right. next time. <laughs> <laughs> Hasta la vista. Bye-bye. No need for fronting, fronting, girl. Fronting, fronting, girl. Long thing. Oh. Fronting, fronting, girl. Fronting, fronting, girl.